Hey everyone, welcome to the Actorzilla podcast. I am your host, James Larson, and today on the show we have DJ Salisbury. Hello everyone. Um, (laughs) um, DJ is an amazing director and choreographer and writer, and I know he was, uh, you were an actor as well, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. right out of college, yeah, That's, that's where I started, yeah. Um, we were just talking about, um, DJ just put up kinky boots at the Riverside theater and he was talking about how, like what the protocol is of a show is fresh from Broadway. Like when it's done regionally, that it can't be like a repeat of the exact, like you were talking about Jerry Mitchell, how you you can't do his staging, right? That's right. It's, you can't replicate someone else's work just like any form of plagiarism. You can't do it verbatim. You can make references, and of course, the script and the score—they are—they are the same. But that, um, for example, that the, the theater has licensed the right to do the words and music. Right. They have not licensed the right to do the original director and choreographer's staging. There are some. I mean, like Susan Stroman. I think she may have been one of the first, uh, and maybe Robbins was in there around the same time to license her crazy for you. So if you do crazy for you and you want to do Susan Sturman's choreography, you can uh, license it and they give you this giant Bible with all (laughs) the steps and everything. Um, And Robbins does that with things like the hat dance and uh, actually all the dances I think in Fiddler are licensed or licensable. You don't have to do them and you have to pay if you do do them. So in, for me as a regional theater director, when I do things, my joy is finding a show, figuring out a show through my lens. So I don't have desire to replicate someone else's work. Right. Um, but I was saying to you before, the strange thing is sometimes there's, there's an expectation on the part of the audience and on the part of even some actors, if they have seen or done the show before, they go, well, you're going to be DJ Mitchell staging. I'm like, no, <laughs> again, it's not legal. No, <laughs> it's not legal. And again, just like you as an actor, I wouldn't ask you to replicate someone else's performance. Right. You will find your version of, of the character. And that's the fun, right? Yeah. That is the fun of rehearsals is like discovering together how this story in this moment will be told. The play doesn't change. The music doesn't change. But what changes are the artists who are uh, creating together, collaborating at, at a given moment to make it uniquely this production. Is there any instance where you're like, oh, my God, the choreography in this number on Broadway was absolutely perfect and I want to use as much as possible? Like, are you you know what I mean? There there must be a line of like being inspired by versus. Yes, that's right. There's a line. Now, interestingly, uh, Kinky Boots, we can use that example. Uh, There is a sort of expectation now because the original staging that there will be a number using conveyor belts slash treadmills. I will just tell you, we got we rented some treadmills that are sort of miniature. <laughs> they were they were smaller than the Broadway versions. They were less powerful than the Broadway versions. Like hamster small or like <laughs> kind of hamster small, yeah. <laughs> but um, what we had to do was like, well, you know, there was no way I could replicate what Jerry Mitchell had done choreographically with those particular devices. So we found our choreography using what we had. Uh, but even still, I was going to I come back to that expectation that there is a treadmill number well i they, sometimes you just wonder do i have to honor that is the audience really going to notice if we do a different completely different idea uh two i've done will rogers follies 10 times and i was uh, an assistant to uh, jeff calhoun on the original jeff was the associate choreographer um working uh hand in hand with tommy tune and of course the famous number the campaign number what we some people refer to as the patty cake number where uh, all the ensemble women are sitting across the stage with Will in the center doing this fun thing, mostly with their hands and sometimes with their legs. There's an expectation that that number is going to be in the show. When I do it, I do a variation on the same, but I also, in that instance, I, f- I feel like I have the privilege to, because I have worked with Jeff and Tommy, I put in the pre- program uh, based upon the original choreography by Tommy Toon, Jeff, that's, that's what I will do um, because I have a relationship with them. But the right. rest of the show is my choreography. The rest of the show, I, I've recently, most recently done a production where there were no full stage steps. 
And in my 10 productions, I've done it in the round twice. There cannot be full stage steps. In what is the that? Round. Sorry, what does that mean? Full stage steps? Uh, full stage steps. In the original production of Will Barger's Follies, the uh, set was literally one giant staircase, staircase that went from uh, the wing stage right to the wing stage left and all the way upstage. There were uh, originally, I think, 16 steps on tour. They went down to 14 steps. And they were skinnies and fat. So one little one step was an average step uh, width. And the next step was uh, danceable, like more like two and a half feet. So they were skinny fat, skinny fat is what we call them, skinny steps and fat steps, um, all the way up to the 14th in the tour and the 16th in the Broadway. But that when people think of Will Rogers' Holidays, they immediately think of that big metaphor. And I will say about Tommy Toon, uh, that's why I love his work. He chose that particular image as a metaphor for Ziegfeld spectacle. Hmm. But what I knew, that was his choice. It's a great choice. But what I knew, even working on the show, is like, that's his choice. It's not the only choice that will work. And having done it in the round uh, a couple times, actually three times, and uh, also in a new production that was preceding him, but not having those full stage width steps, it works beautifully without them because it's a good show. Right. It's just a good show. So So it is interesting that I like to step away from some of the original staging concepts if i have an idea right if if i have an idea it's like i think i know how to tell the story using my own let's call it a gimmick my own metaphor whatever i choose i can tell the story without that as long as the audience is willing to go on the ride with me and say i don't expect full stage steps i don't expect treadmills right right so that's that's the fun of being a director and choreographer is like how am i going to tell the story yeah, and I feel like that that may I mean that makes it more fun too. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> completely. You know, you yeah, don't well, no one gets into this industry to just be a robot copying other no. people, you know. No, no, no. I, I just cuz it's fresh on my mind. I um I love Stephen Hoggett's work, the choreographer. Um and interestingly, if you read up on Stephen Hoggett, he didn't come from dance. He was an actor with a I think a, a get in the van and tour through England actor. Hmm. And developed this way of incorporating movement that people often refer to as pedestrian movement, but it's choreographed and it's two counts, but it's it's essentially real people gesture choreographed. So anyway, I determined that for this kinky boots, I wanted the factory workers to have a move, movement vocabulary distinct from the angels. Those are the drag performers that you meet with Lola in the club. I wanted their movement to be pedestrian movement in the Stephen Hoggett style and then see those two worlds bump into each other in terms of movement vocabulary. Right. And I'm I'm very happy with what we came up with. And uh, so it's a much more for the factory workers in this production. It's much more kinetic than even was the Broadway show for the factory workers. Right. Right. That's awesome. Um, Do you... I guess, uh, how does it work for a director? Like, do you, do you, do you in pre-production, do you have these ideas or do you mostly work them out in rehearsal or do you, I know some choreographers, you know, they, they hire or they have friends that they work workshop stuff. Yes. Um, uh, pre-production, uh, certainly if you're doing a Broadway show or even a, a high end regional show, you may have budget to, uh, rent studio space, uh, wherever you're based, New York or wherever and pull in some friends and do some pre-production to look, to explore some movement vocabulary before you get into the actual rehearsal process. In regional theater, certainly in Summerstock, that doesn't happen. There's just not that, there's not that budget, right? There's not that line item in a budget. Right. Um, I was great, grateful to say I worked with Lauren Letero on an out of town production of Between the Lines, which then went to Off-Broadway. And she did pre-production in New York City because that particular regional theater had been enhanced. It had the money to uh, give her to set up a couple of days of pre-production. Doesn't usually happen. So that usually means <laughs> this guy, this person is in the hotel room or the housing, you know, the night before going like, how am I going to, what am I going to impart tomorrow? I'm sometimes able to do things well in advance, but I really thrive on seeing the actors in front of me, uh, having cast them. I know they're to some degree, they're comp- uh, capacities for movement. Um, but I really love building it on people. Uh, again, which is not to say I'm not prepared. I just prepare sort of here in the head. Sometimes on paper, I will do uh, 
if it's about if it's about moving a lot of bodies through space, a big number like in Forty Second Street where you're moving a lot of bodies through space, then I will come in like here are the steps, here's here's where you are on stage. But for example, with, with Kinky Boots and the factory workers, I wanted to see those people and see how they were going to move together as a group, and that's about being in rehearsal. So sometimes I'm pre, I do pre-production on my own, and sometimes I look at the people in front of me and design. That's uh, that's cool. I didn't I didn't really know how that worked. Um, when you look for actors, when you're casting them, what do you look for? I mean, obviously, some of the shows have different. Every show has different requirements. Like they need to be an excellent tapper, or they need to be right. a musician, or whatever. Um, is there any through line that you found? Like, oh, I really am drawn to actors that blank, you know? Or oh, it's always about storytelling. If I see an actor come in the room. Uh, and have a point of view in whatever material. So, of course, you, you may see them do their own material first, and then in callbacks you see them do the material from the show. But if I see it, them doing their own material with a real point of view, telling a story, um, I'm drawn to that. I'm not so interested in, uh, you know, the people that come in and just show you the high notes. You know, it just, it's, yeah. it's not very interesting to me. It's It may be useful, like if you're doing the production tenter in – tenor in uh, the producers you need somebody who can hit those high notes right right but why don't why don't i keep looking for somebody who can hit those high notes who's also just an interesting person because they're delivering a, a, a some choices beyond hitting the high note so yes the through line for me is i look at the characters i always have students uh in audition technique and i always tell them like i want to find an essence in the character that then when somebody walks in, I go, is that essence a match for how I see the character? Now that's subjective uh, because it's my version of, of the play and the character that I'm, you know, filtering, right? right? It's filtered through that. So it's not the end all be all of this character must be, but it's how I see it. So if somebody comes in the room, um, going back to Kinky Boots, when uh, one of the actors came in for the role of Lola, and I just saw an honesty. So it wasn't simply performance because Flola is big and flamboyant and is asked to do a big uh, first number that you see Lola do is uh, Land of Lola. So it's a performance number. But I wanted to see, is there a human beneath that fabulous performer? I need right. to see the human and that and that the heart and the vulnerability and so when this actor came in, I'm like, oh, there's the vulnerability. Has all the tickets in terms of performance. Can just all the tickets. But the vulnerability was that quality that like if Lola doesn't have that for me, I don't know if the audience will be on board with the storyline. Right. There's there must be some form of identification with what Lola wants and needs. And I saw the vulnerability in this actor and we cast him and fantastic, like as good as it gets kind of curious because um you know for musical theater performers obviously everyone has an audition book right so they may yes. have hopefully not too many songs because that's a lot but if they come in with 10 yeah seven to ten songs so that can't but that can't cover the entire breadth yeah. of so do you i mean and, and, and you're an actor as well like do you just bring the essence like do you change how do you change the essence of a song to like match you know what I mean? Because you can bring different energies to the same song, I feel like. Yeah, of um, course. Yes. What's the way to like translate that to if you're going in for Kinky Boots or a different show where sure. the, you know what I mean? Well, I uh, I like to think that if you have seven to ten songs in your book, you're covered for a first audition. You know, you're going to be covered. Right. Uh, if they're looking for something else, well, that's that's on them. Because inevitably, your book should be a collection of songs, I say this to my students, a collection of friends. These are friends that you enjoy visiting so that when you get in the room, if they say, what else you got in your book? You go, oh, great, I get to visit another friend. You never want something in your book that's like, oh, I haven't done this one in a while. <laughs> because, you know, they should be, there should be an a, a experience of, of being in the material that is fun for you, the actor, because we will see that. We will see that you love crafting this particular musical material and bringing yourself to it. And that just to, to cap on that, the bringing yourself to it is the, is the most important part. Now, again, it changes in callbacks. Then you've got specific material. Then you're being asked to 
at least point toward what you would do with a character. That's a different craft. Right. That's a different craft. At the first audition, I want to see human beings that I, that engage me, that uh, with their because they're engaged with their material. I'm engaged because they're engaged. Then also I go, what do I think it would be like to work with this person? So those are the things that I'm weighing in the first call. So when you, so do you not even worry about? I mean, when when an actor comes in, like, do you not worry about? pointing it towards the show in general? I mean, as close as you can, or is it just about, here's my expression, I hope you're interested in me as a performer, more generally? More generally. If uh, in the in a first call for, like, just because it's fresh, kinky boots, we, we want to pop rock. You know, we're, you're not going to come in and sing Golden Age uh, material for kinky boots, unless you choose to do it in a very rock and roll way, which is, you right. could do that. Um, so there's a sort of, like, expectation, like, this... You want something that suits the, the genre of the musical score in what you sing for the audition. But you don't have to be so specific. You know, you don't have to sing a Cyndi Lauper song to audition for Kinky Boots. Right. 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 You, you, but you want to deliver what they're likely to be looking for in terms of the uh, basic sound. Uh, right. Particularly with it, as if you were auditioning for Amalia in uh, She Loves Me. You're gonna be singing something soprano in the soprano range. You're gonna, right? And but it doesn't have to be from the show, and it actually could be something more contemporary in terms of contemporary musical theater. And it will be okay if you're right. showing that you have beautiful soprano uh, uh, quality of your voice, and you can act, <laughs> and you're making choices. Right. Um. Are there any like? Do you have any um? advice for people that are kind of early career actors, maybe they've graduated from a college in musical theater or just acting in general and are, and want to move to New York city. And, uh, yeah. Get there quick as soon as you can. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just, uh, had a young woman who auditioned for me, uh, by video. Uh, I cast her in, uh, as Natalie in next to normal. She was, 16 the character in the show is 16 and she lives uh lived in rural tennessee and auditioned by video now she had credits i mean she, she'd done jane banks because she was young she'd just come out of doing children's roles right but she's just gifted and i told her parents because they we had a great experience with next to normal and i told her parents like maybe she should just go right to new york maybe she should not do the college program they're not poo-pooing college programs but she has a skill set already, and what really matters in the long run with with uh, New York is people coming to know you and your talent and being able to get you in front of the right people, i.e. casting directors and other directors. So uh, I've used her three times since then, and she literally is now 18 and now lives in New York City based upon my advice because she can still get her associate's degree in whatever she wants. But she's meeting uh, casting directors. She's getting good auditions already. Yeah. Because she had the skill set. And she's right. also very young, which she puts her in a particular category. You know, it's a small pool of very young, uh, very talented actors. Uh, you know, the bulk of the, the talent pool would be between 20 and 40, right? That's the bulk. Right. Uh, so she's in a young category. Anyway, so that's what I suggest. Get there as soon as you can and get in front of people. Right. That's show up. Really real. Yeah. Show up. Show up. Go to yeah. auditions. You may don't type yourself out. Do not type yourself out. If there's something specific, it says I need somebody who's 45 and you're 20. Okay. Right. That's okay. But if uh, you think you know, I don't. Know, just try not to type yourself out. If you want to go for something, go for something. If they say you're not in the ballpark, okay. Okay, that's okay. It's not on you. Right. Um, yeah. That, that's why I say get in front of people as often as you can. And that can be in the form of uh, these casting director uh, workshops. Do it. Because they, if, because they, here's the deal. They're people too. And they, familiarity is comfortable. If I've seen you, James, four times as a casting director, then I feel like I have, I feel like I know you, whether I know you or not, where it's only because you've come in the room four times. Right. But those four times matter the fifth time and i make and this is what always i hear so frequently in auditions 
oh, they're not right for this show, whether it's the director, but it's often the casting. They're not right for the show, but I'm going to pull them in next week for my Jesus Christ Superstar. You know what I mean? They, they, yeah. they, they collect people and put them in their little bird there again, using their filters, put them in the box of like, Oh, that's a perfect person for this show. That's a perfect person for this show. We're seeing them for a show. They're not perfect for, right. But they remember. And that's, that's why you get in front of people. Yeah. And, and people, I've always been curious about the whole networking side of things because mm-hmm. people are like, you know, there's different advice about, I don't know, like net, go to networking events, all this stuff. But at the end of the day, you have to show them your work. That's it. I'm not sure I'm a fan of like just the mingle networking. Right. I'm a fan of showing them your work, uh, letting them put you in their roster somewhere in their files again and again and again. Right. Yeah. How does, uh, you know, there's a lot of theories about how to make like you, you touched on it earlier about uh, auditioning and, and b- making active storytelling choices and being clear. Do you have any like questions that an actor should ask themselves about their material? I mean, obviously you said like connect with it and yeah. Yeah. Choose material. Not that it, you don't choose material because you like it. You choose material because you know, you can do it. You know, you can deliver a clear point of view through it. So that's a, sometimes a trap. People go, oh, I love that song that Alphabet sings. Like, great. But are you going to bring to it your whole self and make choices that have me forget about Shoshana Bean's version or whatever? Right. You know, are you going to make choices that let me be with you right now? Right. Because I'm not interested in hearing your favorite song. Just that's, that's not interesting to hear your favorite <laughs> Broadway song. I want to see you be you through some material. So find material that you feel like I can bring my whole self to. I can use my acting work, pressing on intentions, objectives, whatever words you'd like to choose so that I'm engaged because then you will be engaging. Right. Um, I'm kind of curious about your journey because, uh, you know, you came from an acting background and then now you're, you're doing all this amazing work as a director and choreographer and writer. How did you, what is, what was, what has your journey been like? How would you oh, describe it? Well, I'm old as dirt, uh, but I'll tell you the, the quickest version of the story. So I went to college uh, to be a veterinarian uh, and I took, did a year of pre-med and my acting teacher, my dance teacher was like, hmm, you might think about this as an option. It's like, okay, I can always go back and get my uh, doctorate as a veterinarian. Um, but I never did because I did find, I felt like, oh, this is what I'm here to do. I'm a storyteller. Let me let me do this. So I would then end up uh, at a university in Kentucky, my home state, finished my degree program and right away got a job as a singer dancer at Epcot. Uh, I now live in Orlando, but uh, in that era, it was like Epcot hired me. I was hired out of Nashville, Tennessee at one of their national calls and did that for a year. Flew up to audition for Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera and got a show there. And they have a I think it's still true that if you do a show at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera, you automatically become equity. So even right out of college, I became equity pretty quickly. Uh, So I did not do that, the EMC program, you know, which I think maybe doesn't exist anymore. I don't know. Things have changed so much. Um, But what I learned was getting my equity card, two things I'll share this with your listeners, getting my equity card early because I can dance. And I was a singer, dancer, actor. But getting my equity card early as an ensemble member, as a dancing sing- a singer-dancer, as a dancer-singer, uh, was maybe not the best idea. Mm-hmm. And I learned because uh, I might have had the opportunity to do more summer stock, non-union summer stock, and do acting roles. Now, that did come later, and I'm not at all unhappy with the work I did as an ensemble member. But because I was a strong dancer and singer, I was not looked at as an actor early right. on. That makes sense? Yeah. yeah, because, yeah. So, and that happens. People want to put you in boxes. That just happens. So uh, that's a that's one recommendation. It's like maybe don't take your equity card until you feel as if you've had really good opportunities to be on stage in roles, if that's your goal, if you're an actor. If you're an ensemble member, that's no, no shade. If you know, know that acting is not really your forte, then great. Get all the, get your equity card and get into Broadway shows as, as an ensemble member. It's all great. Um, what else would I say? So back to my journey, I wrote a show in college for credits. They produced it my, the next year. So then I started writing and, uh, also was doing choreography for the, the university's dance company. And 
it became like, okay, this is what I really want to do is write and direct and choreograph. But if I can make my living as an actor, singer, dancer, I'll do that and learn. <laughs> so I got to learn from Tommy Toon. I worked with Susan Stroman on a new musical at Paper Mill and, and I've worked with Jerry Mitchell on the original production of Jekyll and Hyde in Houston. So I got the opportunity to work with great people as an actor, but I was watching to learn how to be a director choreographer. And also in the new pieces to learn how do new shows become shows? How do they find the way through to make it work? Which let me tell you, I, I usually like to say I went to Tommy Toon University because uh, <laughs> watching him work on Will Rogers Follies was was the greatest gift of my life. So that's that's sort of the journey. I kept working. I did four national tours, uh, one Broadway show, and then stopped performing entirely in the year 2000. I said, mm. that's not I'm going to be a director choreographer. I don't want to confuse people. I will just be a director choreographer, but uh, that's when I stopped. What were you, what, what made you realize that you were drawn to the other side of the table? Well, if I go back even earlier, believe it or not, James, I, <laughs> I grew up in a small town in Kentucky, a uh, shy child. Uh, my, I had puppets and my puppets were my actors. And so I was making up stories as a child, usually for me, meaning there, I had no audience. It was me. But in my room, me and my puppets, we would have, we would, I would make up stories. So I, I think that's where I developed my, my skills as a storyteller. So it was kind of always there from childhood. Right. Um, but again, because I could sing and dance and act, I was hired to, to perform. And I love performing, but I knew it was just the avenue to getting back to being a director, choreographer, and a writer. Um, speaking of like putting people in boxes, and everything how does um how do actors approach that in the theater world specifically because obviously with film it's a little different but mm -hmm. for theater you know if you have a skill that gets you hired but you know that you have other skills that you want to highlight or have as a longer term like like you said you know you wanted to have more acting roles um as opposed to the ensemble is there should you get known for one thing first and then try and branch out or do you just you know what I mean? Like, how do you navigate that? Or what is your opinion on that? I think the idea is capitalize on that, which is the, that commodity that is getting hired. You know, if you're the, uh, I have a college roommate, college roommate. I won't say the name, but great, great fella. College roommate, five, five, five foot five. So imagine as a person that of that stature, it, it's it, the box you want to put that person in is Toby and Sweeney Todd, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, maybe Jack and Into the Woods, but but youthful, young, and uh, he is good with comedy. So maybe uh, uh, Mickey Rooney style roles as he gets older. Um, but he was he had the ability to sing like a gospel singer, like this huge, fabulous, high tenor riffing voice, like amazing. Where do you put that? You know, well, cut to he was hired by Disney World to be the one of the first Quasimodos in their stage version of Hunchback of Notre Dame. Hmm. So there was finally a match of his other skills. In addition to being the sort of cute little sidekick guy, they found this role was a perfect match of the other things he could do. That doesn't mean he wouldn't still play Barnaby in Hello, Dolly. Right. You know? So I say embrace what you are as a commodity, meaning what will be sold, what, what the, the act directors and theaters think they can sell that you bring. That's great. There's no shade about that. It's all good. If you have other skills, find your avenue for that self-expression. If you have skills or talents and desires, find an avenue. Cabaret, write your own show. That's what I would say. But don't, re don't resent how you are seen and the commodity that makes you a worthwhile uh, person to hire. That's, it's all great. You know, yeah. I'm six, three and you know, I'm old now, but I have a baby face. So as a younger singer, dancer, actor, I was not being cast as leading man, a leading man until as I got into my uh, near 30, then I was a Cornelius Hackle in hello, Dolly, mm -hmm. because the baby face, the quirky face that I have, was a match. Right. Right. So, uh, but I didn't, and that's just the way it is. Those are the, those boxes are not bad. If you can just see the boxes are not bad. Do they make you money? Great. Right. 
right? I mean, coming from the actor musician world, like it's kind of it's kind of similar in that you know I have a friend who who's a, a amazing trumpet player, and he's like, I only I only do this one show, and I'm like, you do this one show, man. That's like that's amazing. That's yeah. yeah. And get your your fulfillment. If that doesn't fulfill you, get your fulfillment. Yeah. Make it make your own fulfillment somewhere else. Right. Good. And I think it's. Yeah. And this kind of goes into your writing and like making your own content. Basically, I think it, it's never been a better time. I and you know, yeah, to make your own stuff and and get it out there. And I think it's a whole nother hustle as far as like yes. making it work. So it's you know yeah. it's a challenge. But do you have any advice on that too? Because getting your work out there and Lord, James, I will say <laughs> I have a new piece that I'm releasing an album tomorrow. Uh, and the album is uh, of a new musical that's an immersive musical. So the uh, audience are really in involved in the story. And um, this musical, Whisper Darkly, oh my gosh, I had no idea in, that now in nowadays you are not only a writer or director or choreographer, you're also a marketing person. <laughs> you're also a press agent. Producer. You know? yeah. Producer. Uh, yeah, producing this album. Uh, my fabulous uh, collaborator, Andrew Gerla, he went over to Sicily because our, our ranger is in Italy. So he went over to Italy three times. So it, there's a lot of things that one must do to sort of like get something heard. But in the end, that's what we want. Get it out there. Get it heard. Get it seen. So you do whatever it takes. Um, it is interesting in this world of social media and just media, 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 to try to have something cut through is challenging. You know, the good news about that is you can't. You're no longer dependent upon uh, somebody tapping you and saying, you're going to be Britney Spears. You're no longer dependent upon some outside producer. You can break through, but it's a whole job. It is a job. Is there, what is your, what are your goals with this show in particular? My goals with this show, I, you know, I, it was an explore, ex experiment of can a musical be delivered uh, in the immersive theater uh, format? Um, it was an exp exploration. I didn't know if that was true because typically what you get with immersive theater is pieces and parts of stories without necessarily having every element you need to have a satisfying beginning, middle, and end. So like, we, like not a sleep no more. Is that what you're well, like? Sleep of... no more. If you know that it's based upon Macbeth, you know, it's based upon Macbeth. Do you have to know? No. And will you get every portion of the story of Macbeth when you go there? Probably not. So it's just, that was their launching point, their riff. Um, but you get a really cool experience regardless. You may not get some sort of sense of beginning, middle and end story. I wanted us to know, can a, because a musical, you know, you've, the, I want song, good old I want song. You want to follow a specific character and see if they get what they're after. That's kind of the boiling it down, right? Right. Follow a central character. Do they get what they want? Do we want them to get what they want? You know, that's it. And in an immersive thing, well, if you miss pieces of their journey, of their of whether the, what they come up against, you may not have a satisfying end when they get it or they don't. You know, I wanted to make sure the audiences have a satisfying journey. So we set it in a place where we more readily control what they're looking at. They are patrons of a speakeasy. They can look around the room at what's going on in the room. There is a floor show, and the floor show songs reflect what's going on backstage. And also, we scrim through to dressing rooms so we actually see what really is going on backstage. Hmm. Then at a certain point, they're um, giving this away to your listeners, but I'm giving it away. There is a police raid in this speakeasy in 1928, and all of the audience, the, the entire audience is separated into thirds and go into other spaces hmm. with some of the cast in each of those spaces. Then in those spaces, what happens there is they are asked to engage in a cooperative puzzle, figuring something out that lets them get back to the main space to complete the story. So that's where it gets much more immersive. Right. Uh, but we really make sure they get all the story points along the way. So nobody will come out saying, oh, I didn't get that. I don't want confusion. Confusion is, is anathema to, in my opinion, to good musical theater. Confusion is not good. Is that, so it's, I don't want to say an escape room, but is that. Puzzle room. We might call it a puzzle room. Yeah. So it's escape room-esque. Yeah. Right. 
Uh, like also, that. one of the rooms is they follow the chanteuse from, who's returned from Paris. We've come to know her through the show. She goes immediately to the bottle locker, which was a typical thing in speakeasies, where famous people would have a, their own private stash of liquor with a key. Huh. It's a locker, literally lockers of booze. And she takes a group of people into that room. While there, she uh, knows one of her good friends uh, has delicious bourbon. They have to figure out how to get the bourbon. So they have to find the key in the room. They find the key. They And then when they share the bourbon in that space, in that event, she then sings a reprise of the song she sang earlier with dirty lyrics. <laughs> you know, so there's a, so it's an experience. But yeah. if you don't get that experience, you will not be left behind in the story. When they, when that group comes back in the room with the two other groups, they've each had very distinct experiences, but they will not lack anything they need to continue the story. There's different, um, I, I've seen different kinds of immersive experiences. Like one is, um, New York classical theater. They basically the, the entire audience follows everyone. Mm -hmm. Is mm -hmm. that is what is is there like uh, in Sleep No More? Obviously, you can go off anywhere. Anywhere, yeah. Sleep No More is anywhere you want to go. So how does so Whisper Darkly is uh, kind of a, a meld between those, like or it's kind of a meld. We again, okay. uh, the patrons come in; they have to know the password to get in. Uh, in the best of all possible worlds, we know this is not a proscenium theater show. There's a space in London we're looking at that's a uh, was a horse hospital. I'm not kidding; it was a horse hospital in Victorian England, and it's now a venue. But you can build inside it whatever you want to build. And it seems like a really great opportunity for us. Um, they, they did a version of Peaky Blinders, the TV show. Mm -hmm. In that space, there was a Peaky Blinders, an immersive experience. Um, anyway, uh, we, would add, we would have like storefronts, false storefronts, more than one. And the, when you buy a ticket to the show, you may get some clues and go into like a, a candy store, for example. And there might be a phone booth in the candy store. And you might have to interact with the person at the counter to get a number to call on the phone. And then that person on the phone will give you the password at the hidden door that leads you into the club. Mm -hmm. So we want to create from the get-go, we want it to be like you are having a speakeasy experience. When you're in the club, then you're seated at tables and chairs being delivered your, your drinks by some of the performers. By the, the wait staff are also the performers in the floor show. And then we guide your where your eye goes. There's a scene that happens at the bar by two actors, and they're, they will be facing a mirror. So they're seated with their backs to you, but you see them in the mirror behind the bar. And they have this, and we the lights will come up on that scene. So you know where to look at any given moment. So it's more guided than some immersive experiences. Right. Uh, but then at the end, near the end, Every police raid, you are come with me, come with me. You know, it's it's melee, it's a chaos and fun, so much fun. Is there any difference? I mean, between how you approach that versus a proscenium kind of show? I mean, yes, it opens up the it just in the round is similar. It opens up the possibility when the actors are actually weaving through tables and chairs. Um, you, it's for as a director, I have to really know what must they be, what need they be looking at. But if your eye can go anywhere. You know, and it, that's like sleeping more. You can do anything, go anywhere. It, but we need to make sure that the story points are landed. So as a director, I have to know what's going to draw their eye most. So in the opening number, um, I have a, an actor that pretends to be some, a contemporary person because it's set in 1928, but they will be in contemporary clothing. I'm giving away all the secrets now, James. Not all the secrets, a <laughs> couple of secrets. So that contemporary person starts hitting on one of the actors who's seated at a table as if she is a patron that night. He starts hitting on her in his contemporary clothes and the doorman throws him out behind the audience. And how do we know that? Because we might see the, the subtle interaction and he's this drunk guy hitting on this woman and you might see that, but, but there's a number going on on stage. What you will see or hear is when he gets him to the back door and throw, they, then it starts to become a shouting match. It causes one of the actors in the number on stage to forget her lines, right? So we know something's happening. So what's happening back there? They're shouting at each other. And then finally, the doorman throws the guy out and slams the door. People will look. Right. People will be aware. So that's my job is to make sure they're 
capturing the moments we we have to have them capture in order to follow the story. Right. That's that's the task as the director in any sort of environmental ex- experience. Is there? Did you conceive of the show to be uh, immersive from the beginning, or did it yes. turn into that? Okay. No. Yes, it was conceived to be immersive because, like I said at the top, I wanted to explore: can a musical with a beginning, middle, and end work in this genre? And we did a workshop in Orlando with uh, a full cast. Uh, the cast is fourteen people, and we found a dance studio that was going out of business, and we made it our speakeasy our hush club and it had as a dance studio it had dressing rooms that were our alternate spaces so it was kind of a miracle that we happened upon it and we discovered audiences really wanted to as some person said to me you usually hear when somebody says i want to see that about a show oh i want to go see that show they literally have said to me over and over i want to do that mm-hmm. because it is a do right you know, you're and actively so, involved. Sense, yeah. yeah, you get to be involved. I want to do that. And and that's I think that's why I'm drawn to immersive experiences, because I know I'm going to be involved. Yeah. Um, obviously, Sleep No More is a huge hit. And, a, yes. and I never. Uh, well, it's closing soon. So I'm going to try yes. and see it. You go if you can. I I'm loved trying. it twice. I loved it. Um, do you think it's the future of, you know, experiences? Well, the more that we get into this VR, you know, world maybe is my answer i think uh, again being involved having a, a unique experience is very sexy and juicy to people uh when it comes to theater in general and it is a form of theater but when it comes to theater musical theater uh the challenges become where are you going to do it that especially in commercial theater where are you going to do it where there's enough people in any given performance that will keep your show open financially right uh, you may be aware there's a beautiful uh, venue created for the Great Gatsby Experience in New York, in Manhattan. And they had done it for seven years in London and England, throughout England and London. Seven years. Success, right? Came to New York. Couldn't make the numbers work. Wow. Couldn't make, and it was in a ballroom of a hotel on 7th Avenue. And they couldn't make the numbers work. So that's the big challenge with immersive. I know you know that Cabaret is coming in. And it's from London, and it's still more immersive than even the Sam Mendes production, which was more immersive than the original. Right. Um, and so there, I know they in the London production, you entered the back of the theater and went through the basement or something and saw the actors, meaning the characters in the in the Kit Kat, Kit Kat Club, getting ready for their show. So that was part of the immersion aspect. But then once you got, I think once you get to the show, you're essentially getting the cabaret. Right. It was all of that extra element that made it unique. But that's hard to do in a proscenium house. It's just really hard to do in a proscenium house. Yeah. Um, I wonder because, uh, you know, how it's done like regionally. Obviously, if you only have a theater and you only have one space, mm-hmm. do you think it can be successful there or is it really space dependent? I think it is space dependent. You know, some theaters have a black box or. Theater companies around the country here in the States can look into alternate spaces and just, you know, be the promoter, the the face of a of an ex- immersive experience, but maybe have a warehouse that's across town. Right. You know, um, we've talked to some people uh, regarding Whisper Darkly in Vegas, and there's a space there called Area 15, uh, which is was built to be about immersive experiences, art mm-hmm. and theater and all forms of immersive experience. And... Um, it's, it's cool. If you ever go to Vegas, you gotta go. It's pretty, pretty amazing space. It's this big, giant, rectangular building with no windows. So it's fabulously imposing in its own way. But inside, they have various spaces that can become whatever. Um, and so we've talked to them about the possibility of Whisper. They're building one in Orlando, as a matter of fact. They're building an Area 15 in Orlando. I hope that's not, I think that's not a secret. <laughs> I mean, it's, not, it's not a secret. They, they, they've already bought the property. So they're, they're planning. um that's that's really cool um what inspired that show for you to write that show whisper darkly yeah um that i love immersive theater now i will say sort of what i didn't know i would i didn't know i'd fall in love with the characters as much as i have uh it's an original piece so it's about uh, about topeka mcshane 
She's very, very loosely based on a famous uh, speakeasy proprietress of the 20s uh, called Texas Guinan, who was like this large in the life, toast to the town, but she was in, a, in the business of running illegal businesses, right? She was in speakeasy world. So, but she would be closed down by the police and literally open another one three doors down on the same street, you know, the next night. It was right. just, what a, what a time, right? What a time. So <laughs> Topeka is loosely based upon Texas and uh, another character that's a central figure, the, the woman who comes to sit in the audience to watch her friend Topeka's show is visiting from Paris and she's loosely based upon Josephine Baker. We discover in her song that uh, she left the United States as a black woman because she kept hitting a ceiling. She kept hitting a ceiling about uh, the, the opportunities were, as we would guess, limited. Whereas in Paris, she becomes a big star. And so now she comes back to visit her friend Topeka and she has become an international star. So that's one character. And then the young other character, Evie, has come to New York. She's only been there two weeks. She's learned the floor show. Her aunt is Topeka. And we get information. I don't want to reveal too much, but we get information about what was happening in Kansas that she was escaping and what she thinks she'll find in this new world of the speakeasy. And inevitably she makes a decision about does she belong here or does she not? So it's a, I love these characters. I love them. I love them. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's, that's what I discovered in the writing of it is like coming to feel the, them become more three-dimensional. If you were, um, I mean, when you're directing this, do you direct it? Like as an actor, do you approach immersive differently or is it just about the optics of I'm my back is to the audience and they can see me through a mirror and I have to be louder or whatever. Is it just about the technicality of it or is there it something is fundamentally different? No, yeah. I think it's the tech technicality. And I learned a bit of the same when I worked in the round in Sacramento music circus and uh, West Virginia public. I think those are the only two theaters we've done in the round. Um, you, there are techniques about, you know, example being in, in the round, if you're on one side of the circle, like on the edge of a circle, you don't face the small portion. You, you don't face the direction where you're standing. You face the biggest possible audience. You face across so that more people are seeing your face, especially in musical theater. Seeing mouths move is very helpful for people getting the words. So there are techniques like that, that you don't put your back to the largest portion of the audience, you put your face to the largest portion of the audience. And that's right. not, that's, that's useful in immersive as well. But like I said, if there are noises or other things like the door slam that forces an eye together, what just happened? That's the things that you employ, those little techniques to make sure they're looking where you want them to be looking. It, it kind of just it just struck me now that it's almost like a film where that mm -hmm. we're like directing the camera. The audience is yeah. like the camera that needs to see where it is. And instead yeah. of having cuts, we like sound and movement and all and this. These lighting. are different and lighting. And these are all different tools that we can use. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, for, you know, when the floor show will have a certain level of light over the audience when they're doing numbers on stage, because you would still be lit in a bar, right? But when we go to scenes that happen backstage and we scrim through to those scenes, the level of light will dim much darker in the seating area. So that, again, my eye is supposed to go where the light is. So those are the techniques. Um, this kind of goes back to what you were talking about with the, this actress, uh, young actress that you were uh, impressed with. And uh, she sent a tape in. Was uh -huh. there any? Is there anything about self-tapes that... Um, technique wise that that can help actors to like step up their game sometimes i wonder about like do we calibrate our our performance to like where we think the where the show might be like if it's a big broadway stage and we're doing a scene do we play it more like a film scene or do we play it like we're in a theater you know it is a tricky balance and i'm i have great compassion for all actors who who in the last several years have just had to by necessity lean on self-tape because it is that is is it am i doing a stage performance or am i doing a film performance i guess my answer would be it probably wants to be somewhere in between mm -hmm. i don't enjoy getting self-tapes where it's like just neck up because i'm like well then i don't know what you do with your your whole physicality 
I want to see at least waist up. You know, that's me, my preference. I want to see you from the waist up. So I see what you might look like as a presence on a stage. Uh, but in terms of volume and all those stage techniques, you, know, you can't blow out your mic. So it can be more, it can be more intimate and that's okay in terms of, of, of volume level. Right. Um, yeah, it's tricky. There's people have asked me before about, you know, what do you look for in a self tape? I, again, it's what I look for in the room is this person communicating. Do I believe I tell my students, you know, what we do is all fantasy. It's all pretend, but we are attracted to the semblance of reality. The semblance of reality is what we're getting. And if I can buy into you having uh, doing something like if you're berating somebody or you're soothing somebody and I can, I can see that that's what you're actively doing, then I believe it's real. Because yeah. to a degree, you're doing that. You're actually doing that. Right. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice for people that are writing shows or maybe writing their own content to maybe show different sides of themselves as, you know, if it's a solo show or a cabaret or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what I, what I have essentially done in my career is like, I write things I want to see. Yeah. It's like, I, that's all I want to do. I, I don't think now I won't, I won't lie and say that whisper darkly. I didn't have the idea of like, Hey, this might be on trend an immersive theater piece. It might be on trend, but in the end, I wanted to tell a story that I, a story that I'd want to see, uh, whether it makes me money or not is never, it can't be the impetus because it just takes too long. It takes so long. Right. Uh, I just had a production of my Moonshine and Mistletoe, which is an Appalachian music piece and uh, the uh, set in the, the Great Depression in rural Kentucky. I mean, that's let's just put it out there. Probably not, you know, Broadway fodder. And yet uh, it was beautifully received. And it's just a lovely, simple story. And it was the story I wanted to tell. That's all the story I wanted to tell. Right. Because I would want to see it. Not everybody will. We had very good sales. Not I don't want to poo-poo the production. It was, we had very, very high sales. But I wrote it because I want to see it. And that's what I say to anybody. You, if you don't have passion about the story you're telling, you won't keep going. It takes too long and too much effort and too much exactly. hustling. You to... You'll stop. If you don't have passion about the story you're telling, uh, you will just stop. You will give up because it's a hard, hard road. Right. Um, and I have on my, you know, I have a little list of like, I want to adapt this and I want to adapt this and I want to adapt this. It's a very short list <laughs> right. that I've collected over a lifetime because I love this story and I want to put it on stage. And, you know, I'm in the process with several of them, but I have no guarantee that they'll ever see the light of day. All I know is I have passion about telling the story. And that's what I say to anybody. Whatever you're passionate about expressing, and in that's in Cabaret, what you want to express, do that. Right because your passion will carry you through to the finish line. Um, I've started, uh, I've been writing some shows too. Um, Great. One of them's a musical, one of them's a play. And I totally agree with, like, I totally uh, can relate to that because it's like, what do I love? And also, but like sometimes when I was younger, I'd write these plays and they were like so terrible. I'd be like, no one is ever going to produce it, nor should they. <laughs> but like, for some reason, I feel like, I've been an actor and a performer and it's just involved in, in this industry for so long that I feel like I have a grasp of what might work commercially, but also Great. might, might meet my artistic, you know, that I'm interested in. Great. Perfect. And I, and I, I feel like maybe that's the sweet spot and that's kind of what mm -hmm. you were talking about. Like whisper, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. it's on trend and it's, it's something that other people want to see as well as you would want to see, you right. know? Yes. But the passion is what will carry you through the process Right. Um, I mean, we can have an idea like, hey, this story might sell. That's great. But right. if you don't have passion also, turn back. Wrong road. <laughs> Wrong road. And that it's like not every production, like you said, not not every show needs to be on Broadway, you know. That's right. And you can't control the, the destiny of a show no. um, as much as you might want to. Yeah. I'm, but, yeah as much as I jump in, sorry to jump in, but like yeah. I know people that think, you know, I have a Broadway show here. It's like, well. If, if that's the goal, I'm, I wish you all the luck in the world. But the, for me, the goal should be tell a great story. 
Right. That then people say, I want to put my money behind it and play it wherever, Broadway, regional, summer stock, wherever, that people say, I believe in this. I, I want to share this story with the world. Do that because if Broadway is the so like the only um, what is it brass ring, it, it's just hard. It's you know there's a lot of disappointment in that kind of a uh, uh, expectation. And it takes. I mean, from what I know of sh- Broadway shows, they usually take uh, pretty long to gestate. Their... Oh yeah, usually ten years is the average. Like yeah. Kinky Boots, which I just did. That's interesting that that was the one that um, was pretty short because the movie was 2005. And it was on Broadway in 2013. So that was a pretty rapid yeah. development. But there, let's just be clear. Why is why was it a rapid development? Cindy Lauper. Right. Because the name recognition, the stardom that, that was already there had money come to it. Money just came to it. And that's part of the that's part of the industry. You you can write it whatever you're gonna write, but you inevitably will need money to get it up anywhere. Do you level. think about that about getting people attached to it that might help the trajectory oh, yeah. of your production? Oh, sure. That's why they. That's exactly why the album of Whisper Darkly is coming out tomorrow. Mm. The album. It's the show is Electro Swing. I didn't say that before, but the score is Electro Swing, uh, and I'll send you stuff, James, uh, so you can hear it. But it's it's a new genre of music, and it's the first time that we're aware that it will be used in a musical theater piece. And we knew that because it's a new genre of music. Uh, not usual to the musical theater uh, realm, making the album would have people get it. They would understand this is what it sounds like. Because you can say electro swing and people are like, huh? Or if they know, they'll go, that's great. I love to dance to it. Well, this is that and musical theater. Right. Uh, it's a really a combination of the two things. So we needed people to hear that. And this album will surely, at, at the very least, have people understand what it sound like, sounds like. And hopefully then go like, ah, I want to invest in that. It's exciting to me. I get it now. Yeah. And so it's, it took money and time to get the album up as a marketing tool. Right, right. And in marketing a show, in marketing your show, like what are your techniques? I mean, um, obviously making the, the album and, and looking at spaces and doing productions. Yeah. Um, is there any other thing that you do to, to get it mm-hmm. out there? You, you get it out there. That's, that's the phrase. Uh, March 6th, we're doing a concert of several songs in a speakeasy in New York City. Um, we are also doing a, a music video of one of the songs because there too, we wanted the visual connector to the electro swing. Is like I said, electro swing is a dance genre. And there are a couple of numbers in the show that are going to be fabulous, big dance numbers. So we want to show what does that look like? Does it look like the Charleston from the twenties? No, it looks like a hybrid of the Charleston from the twenties and what you might see in Moulin Rouge or other contemporary dance musicals. Hmm. We want to show people this is not you. You don't. We're not, we don't want you to all assume you know what this is going is going to be. We're showing you what it's going to be. Right. As a way to have people, it's a marketing tool. So like, ah, now I know what it is. Do you have like a dream venue in New York if it ever came to New York? <laughs> Well, uh, it's tricky. I saw, I don't know if you saw, did you see Here Lies Love? Uh, no, I didn't. It was, and, and Great Comet. I saw both. And those were like yeah. the, the quote unquote immersive musicals that have been on Broadway. It's so tricky to try to make a Broadway theater feel like something other than a Broadway theater. I think Here Lies Love did a great job of right. retooling the space. And yet we want our audience to be in a speakeasy. We do believe that we need to find a venue like the Horse Hospital in London, where within the walls of that space, we have actually created a speakeasy so that when you walk in, you're not in a theater. So it's that's in New York City, we would probably end up finding something like a warehouse. I mean, the places where uh, who knows if this will work, but the Armory is a place that's kind of an empty shell. Yeah, that's a great that's, space. That's a place where you could, within those walls, build all the things you need to build. Right. Um, and that could start uh, That could start even in the, the cool lobby place they yeah. have with all the history. and. Yeah. 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 So those there are spaces. Uh, uh, Brooklyn has some spaces. I've uh, seen right. some things out there. But Manhattan is just really hard. Uh, like what is left that is an empty shell space. Not many things. I mean, actually, I just saw here. Here we are. Do you see? Here we are. 
The oh, Sondheim yeah, Theater. I did. Yeah. Yeah. That venue is kind of all configurable. Yeah. So that's an interesting of, of the New York venues. They're just the few where they're shells that you get to put in them what you want. Right. Right. Yeah. But it, it our show is built that way. It, it's not built for a proscenium. <laughs> awesome. Uh, DJ Salisbury, amazing director, choreographer, oh, writer, performer, and human being. Um, I do. I I, I I like to ask people to um, in your off in your off stage life. I'm just curious what your hobbies interests are these days. Do you have any passions that you're pursuing besides stage? My goodness, it's mostly theater stuff. That's what I'm pursuing. Yeah, I love my dog. Yeah, I, I love my dog. You were Kelly. saying you you were studying to be a veterinarian. Like, uh, let's yes, get I'm curious yeah. about. You yeah, must love animals. Then tidbit. I lived in uh, rural Kentucky growing up, but even over the course of my life there, we had five monkeys as pets. <laughs> what yeah, really? Yeah, ridiculous. How did that happen? I can't even tell you. My dad was world curious, and <laughs> I don't know. We had five monkeys, and so that was where I said, oh, "I'm going to do that. I'm going to study um, great apes." That was going to that was my plan. Wow. Uh, but now I uh, it, I still just love storytelling. However it comes out of me, that's what I'm still focused on. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate James, it. It's a good time with you. Yeah, you too.